And thanks, Dwayne, for praying for me. You might have noticed I'm sort of limping. I'm on a got a little splint here. This is the result of an argument. <laughs> I was playing basketball, and my mind thought I was Michael Jordan, and my body disagreed. <laughs> my body won the argument. So <clears throat> let's pray as we uh, look into God's Word together. Lord, we appreciate your amazing grace. We give you thanks and praise that you've looked at us and called us to be yours, to adopt us into your family, to make us your people, to call us to be part of your kingdom. Help us to live as worthy servants in your kingdom. Teach us today from your word, Lord. Open our hearts by your spirit. Change us into your likeness that we might serve as you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Jesus came, as we looked at last week through the Lord's Supper, to die on the cross. He came to take our sins away. He came to create a whole new people, a new race of people, the body of Christ, of which every one of us, no matter what denomination, what church body, what country we live in, we're part of the kingdom of God part of the body of Christ, if we know him as Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Colossians puts it wonderfully, I think. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So all of us who know him are part of a new kingdom, part of a new, a new way of living. But we live with some tension in our lives, don't we? Because we also live in the world. And so we struggle with what it means to be part of this kingdom of God that is here now, if Christ is in us, He lives in us, He reigns in us, but it's not yet. It hasn't come fully. It won't come fully until He comes again and sets everything right. So we live with the tension of what it means to be in the world but not of the world. To live with the principles of the kingdom rather than the principles of the world. We live with that tension. Well, Jesus came to die. He also came, as you look at his life and how he, how he lived, how he ministered, he came to create a group, the disciples of leaders, who would be leaders in this new kingdom who would carry on the work once he left, once he died and ascended, rose again and ascended into heaven, were all results of those apostles, those disciples who ministered faithfully as leaders. But they had to learn how to live as leaders in the new kingdom, just like we have to. We need to learn the principles of what it means to be leaders, to be followers of Jesus Christ, in that new kingdom that he's created. But like I say, there's tension there. We struggle with what that looks like. But it's important that we do struggle with it, and it's important we learn those principles of kingdom living, of being leaders in his kingdom. And all of us are leaders. I don't care whether you're a leader in the church, you're on staff, or whether you're just a leader in your home, with your kids, at your job, and your family, or whatever. You are there as a leader for Jesus Christ to be a leader for his kingdom. And therefore, you too, as much as me, 
need to learn the principles of kingdom leadership, kingdom leading. So the question is, how is leadership to function? What are, what are we to be like? What are the marks of leadership in God's kingdom? Well, Jesus, in the upper room, as he is that very night about to be arrested, teaches his disciples, because at this point, they don't get it. <laughs> He's been teaching them for three and a half, four years, and they don't get it, and he very patiently teaches them again the principles. So let's look in Luke 22 as he teaches them the principles of kingdom leadership. What are the marks of leadership in the kingdom? I want to begin in verse 23 and read just 23 and 24. Jesus has just been talking about the Lord's Supper, telling them all about it, how he's to die and, and the bread and the cup represent his body and his blood. And then he says, one of you will betray me. And notice how they respond. Verse 23, they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So they're starting to argue about and discuss, well, who's, who's the bad guy? Who's at the bottom of our group? And then verse 24, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Do you realize what they're doing? They're arguing about, where do I fit in this whole hierarchy of leadership? Hey, we're leaders. We're the followers of Jesus. Am I at the top or am I the bad one at the bottom? And they're trying to lay out this whole flow of, of hierarchy. Who's at the top? Who's at the bottom? There's a competition among them. There's a struggle. And I, I have a master's in biblical counseling, and we talked a lot about small group dynamics and one thing you always hear in those classes is that this is typical. Any small group tends to go into this period of where people are struggling, competing for who's going to really lead this group. And do I, where do I fit? Do I fit in the middle or am I at the bottom of the totem pole? I mean, where am I here in this whole hierarchy? We want to know how we fit. It makes us feel comfortable. It's normal in every small group. Notice what Jesus says in verse 25, responding to them as they struggle with this. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus says, you know what you guys are doing? It's normal in the world. <laughs> he says the Gentiles, those outside the church body, they lorded over one another. And what he's really describing is just a normal hierarchy that you find in any institution in the world. And that's as it should be. You see, you need to have a certain hierarchy, levels of management and all those kinds of things in the world because it protects us from the sinfulness of one another. It provides accountability, protects us from our own sin in some ways. And so the world functions in this pyramidical structure where you have presidents and vice presidents and, man and managers and supervisors and workers. And, but you can change the names. If it's the military, you just have different names. If it's some kind of social organization, you have certain names. If it's a political organization, you have certain names. If you have uh, a business, you have certain names. But it's all functioning under this hierarchy, this pyramidical structure. <clears throat> 
And he says those who have authority over them are called benefactors. You see, in the ancient world, in ancient Greece, there were those who called, liked to be called benefactors because they liked to have, give this impression that I'm the one who's benefiting you by commanding you, by telling you what to do. I'm your benefactor. You're really benefiting from my leadership. So that's why they were called benefactors. Um, but that's how it works in the world, Jesus says. There's a command structure. There's someone at the top and there's others in between. And it really works quite well. Most all of you are in some kind of structure like that. You know where you fit. You know who's above you. You know who you answer to. If the boss tells you to do something, you better do it or you'll be looking for another job. You know who's below you. You know who you have authority over. And like I say, this works and it works well. What's interesting is the church has adopted this same structure, essentially, as uh, Ray Stedman describes it, says, probably with the best of intentions, the church has nevertheless repeatedly borrowed in toto the authority structures of the world, changed the names of executives from kings, generals, captains, presidents, governors, secretaries, heads, and chiefs to popes, patriarchs, bishops, stewards, deacons, pastors, and elders. Christians frequently have set up the world's pattern of government without even bothering to change the names in churches, mission organizations, etc. Then he goes on to say, in most churches today, an unthinking acceptance has been given to the idea that the pastor is the final voice of authority in both doctrine and practice, and that he's the executive officer of the church with respect to administration. And then tongue-in-cheek, he says, but surely... If a pope over the whole church is bad, a pope in every church is no better. <laughs> so the question is, what is leadership to be like in the church? What does Jesus say about it? Should we just take on the structures of the world, or should we not? Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 26. This is the way they do it. Gentiles lorded over one another. They have authority, are called benefactors. But not so with you. He says something's to be different about the church. Leadership in the church is to function differently. Kingdom principle is different than that in the world around us. Why? Why is that so important? Why would Jesus care? I mean... It seems to work pretty efficiently, right? That we would take this structure, the hierarchical structure. It gets things done. You know where you fit. Well, he explains very clearly in Matthew 23 why this is not a good idea. Matthew 23, verses 8 through 10 say this. Do not be called rabbi or reverend. <laughs> For one is your teacher... And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. Why is it so important to Jesus? Because he wants to be the head of the church. And if we've got a big hierarchy set up, you always know who you answer to, the next person up, right? But where's the Lord in all that? He says, no, I do not want you 
to function in that way. I want you to see yourselves, he says there, all as brothers. And therefore, leaders in the church are not to function under a hierarchical authority, but to be all brothers, so that Jesus is the head of every one of us, of the entire body, as we function as brothers and sisters in Christ together. It shall not be so among you, he says. Well, then what is leadership to look like in the church? What are the marks of leaders? We know what the marks of leaders in the world are. You could probably name them off. You have to have certain charisma. You have to be able to be assertive. You have to have a certain understanding of people. You have to be able to do your job properly, fill the job description, exercise authority, but also submit to the authority above you. There's all kinds of things the world would tell us. This is how it works. These are the marks you need to have to function properly in the world system. But how is the church to function? What are the marks? I want to look at four different marks that Jesus goes on to give the disciples so that we can think through each of us in whatever place God has placed us as followers of him, as the head of the church, and as leaders, in a sense. What does that mean for us as Christians? The first mark comes in verses 26 and 27. He says, not so with you, not like the world, but instead, let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. First mark he gives us of leadership in the body of Christ is humble service. Servant leadership. Humble service. He says real greatness comes from not striving for the highest position, being the one with privilege, being the one who has the most people under you. That's greatness in the world, right? The one who's great is the one who has the most people under them, has the most people serving them, has the highest salary, has the most privileges. Jesus says, you want to know what greatness in the kingdom of God is? the one who takes the lowest position, the one who places themselves under everyone else to build them up. That's a leader. And he draws attention to two pictures of that. He says, B is the youngest. You see, in that culture, the oldest had all the privileges. The youngest was left with nothing. Still true today in some cultures. My wife's grandfather came over from Italy to this country because he was the youngest of all the sons in the family. And when they divided up the inheritance, nothing was left for him. Nothing. He was the youngest. He didn't have any privileges. So he got on a boat, came over to the United States, established himself, ended up going back 10, 12 years later. He was 30, married a 15-year-old, Italian girl, brought her back, and they never went home again. They lived here because they didn't have privileges there, being the youngest. I'm glad, they did, I'm glad he did that because that's how I met my wife. She was here. And he uses another picture, not just the youngest, but he says the one who reclines versus the one who serves. In that culture, ancient culture, the privileged ones would lay around in couches around the table and lay on one side and then, and then eat. And that was the place of privilege. 
It was the slaves that would go and make sure they were fed and taken care of. And he says, I want you to be as a slave. And at this very point, I think, in the upper room, Luke doesn't refer to it, but John does. Jesus got down and washed the disciples' feet. Do you realize the power of that? Here is the rabbi. Here is the leader. Here is the authoritative one. If anyone deserved to command authority, he did. And yet he bends down, takes the lowest slave job of all, washes the dirt off their smelly feet. He did so to say, look, I'm your example. See, Jesus is looking for people who will be servants, as he was. John Stott says, the emphasis of Jesus was not on the authority of a ruler leader, but on the humility of a servant leader. The authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power, but love. Not force, but example. Not coercion, but reasoned persuasion. And Oswald Sanders says, True greatness, true leadership, is achieved not by reducing men to one's service, but in giving oneself in selfless service to them. That's true leadership. So Jesus says, notice here, verse 27, I am among you as the one who serves. And it's really interesting to look at Jesus' leadership style. How did he lead the disciples during those three and a half to four years that he had with them? It's a fascinating study. Again, if anybody had the right to command them what to do, he was the creator, the Lord of the universe. He could have said, do this, do this, do this. He never did. His leadership style was one of never commanding, never coercing, never demanding, but always leading by example, by love. He would teach truth that he wanted them to get, and then he would back off and give them time to respond, not force them to comply, but led by persuasion, by teaching, by letting the Lord work in their hearts. And as we've seen, they kept blowing it. They just didn't get it. But you know what? Jesus never said, that's it. You haven't got it. You're fired. <laughs> I'm going to go find 12 other guys that are going to get it. You're not doing the job, guys. You're not making it. You're out of here. He never did that. He always had an ha attitude of, okay, let's go over this again. No, it's the 24th time. <laughs> but let's, let's see if you can get it this time. <laughs> he rebuked them at times but he continued to serve them. As he washed the disciples' feet, as he says this, Judas is there. Jesus even washes Judas' feet and even gives Judas the opportunity to rebel and go his own way. That is servant leadership. That's the kind of leadership God has called every one of us to in our families, with our kids, as we serve in the body of Christ. So the first mark of leadership in the church is servant leadership. Jesus is our example. But let me warn you, 
that if you choose to serve in that way and not live as the world does, something will happen. The second mark is that you will attract spiritual warfare. Jump down with me to verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, using Peter's original name, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. You don't see this in English, but the you there is plural. He's talking about all the disciples. He says, Simon, I want you to know, Satan has asked permission to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. There it switches to singular. Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. The implication is that Satan demanded permission and the Lord granted it. He said, okay, you can sift them. And sifting in those days, you need to realize what was in the disciples' mind as they were hearing this. It wasn't kind of gently shaking a sieve and maybe some will fall through. The way they sifted in those days was they would take a shaft of wheat bundled together and they'd beat it on the ground and smash it and they would jump up and down on it, trample on it, breaking down all the kernels, breaking off the husks, crushing it. Then they'd put it in a sieve and they would shake it and throw it up and shake it violently and throw it up to try to separate the wheat from the chaff. That's what Satan demanded that he would be able to do with the disciples. That's what Satan seeks to do with every one of us, the leaders in in God's kingdom. And if you choose to live as a servant, you will experience spiritual attack. Jesus says that. And they were sifted. Within a few hours, every one of the disciples sitting there, including Peter, had abandoned their Lord, had run away. The temptation, the trial had been too much. They fled. Satan loves a self-promoting, arrogant, authoritarian, hierarchical leadership in the church. He would love that. He loves it when the church just buys into what the world says. Why? Because the Lord's not ruling the thing anymore. It's all run by men. But what Satan hates and what he attacks is servant leadership, people who are truly humble and humbly coming along and building up others. So Jesus prays. You see, Jesus is praying for us. He is caring for us. He is there to uplift us. And he says, I've prayed for you in this battle that your faith may not fail. The word there for fail is not be snuffed out, not be totally gone. It may go dim, but it won't go out, Peter. You see, Jesus is praying that our faith won't be totally gone. Though we'll struggle, though we'll have difficulty, though we'll experience spiritual attack, our faith that God is good, that God is working out his plan, that God's purposes are right and good and wonderful, will not be totally snuffed out. He uplifts us and encourages us as we continue to serve as humble, dependent servants and experience attack because of it. It's interesting the attack your staff has gone through in the last year. 
from all kinds of physical problems to moral difficulties, struggles. I was glad to hear Bill sing today. Three or four days ago, he couldn't talk. <laughs> it's, it's attack. But God attacks every one of us in the body of Christ if we're willing to serve others around us. And in the attack, though, God uses it for good. And so the third mark of a leader in the kingdom of God comes out in the next few verses. Verse 32. Oh, let me read that again. Down through 34. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to both go to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Here's Peter looking at it from a worldly perspective again. Leadership, I'll be your leader. I'll do it. I'll stand up. Yeah, they'll all fail. They'll be sifted, but not me. I'm going to do it, Lord. I'll never deny you. I'm with you. I'm for you. And the Lord says, Peter. You need to realize this is the only time in the Gospels he ever calls him Peter. Except for the time that he named him Peter when he said, I say you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He says, Peter, you are going to fail. I still see you as a rock that will be a leader for me. But you will deny me. You too will turn your back on me. Peter's still depending on his own personal power and commitment, like the world, like leaders in the world. But Jesus says, no, you'll be ready to be a leader for me when once you've blown it, you've failed, you've sinned, but you've turned back to depend on me, to find forgiveness and grace in me. Then you'll be ready, he says, to establish or strengthen your brothers. You see, real leadership in the kingdom of God does not come out of commitment and pulling you up by your bootstraps and making it happen. It comes out of broken dependence on the Lord. Beautiful passage in the scriptures when this was actually fulfilled in John 21. You know the story where Jesus is risen from the dead. He makes breakfast for the disciples and he's talking with Peter on the on the shore. And he says, Peter, or Simon actually, Simon, do you love me enough to die for me? That's the word he uses, agape. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me enough to die for me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you as a brother. He uses the word phileo. He says, Essentially, Lord, I can't say I love you enough to die for you anymore. I said that before. I was wrong. But I love you as a brother. That's all I can say. Three times Jesus asked him, and three times Peter said, You know all things. You know, Lord. You know my heart. I can't pull it off. And Jesus said, says, Tend my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. You see, Jesus is commissioning Peter. He says, oh, Peter, finally. Now you're broken. Now you're not self-dependent, but you're learning to depend on me. Now you're ready to be a leader 
in the kingdom of God. You see, a mark of leadership in the body of Christ in the kingdom of God is brokenness. Realizing you can't pull it off. You're not no longer saying, am I the greatest? You're saying, oh, Lord, thank you for the privilege of serving. Thank you for your forgiveness. I don't deserve it, but you are great. Thank you for using me. God's not looking for greater commitment, but greater brokenness, greater dependence on him, greater humility. I lay awake Thursday night, Friday morning, because I was so tensed up about all the things I had to do in the next few days. I couldn't sleep. I was so worried about everything coming up ahead, including a sermon Sunday morning. And as I struggled with that and thought about that, I tried to give it to the Lord and said, Lord, you're going to have to help me with this. I just can't, don't know that I can pull it off. Got up at six to go play basketball. <laughs> Sprained my ankle, ended up on my back for the next two days. Why did the Lord allow that to happen? He wanted to teach me again the lesson that I have to learn again and again and again. It's not me pulling it off. It's me trusting Him by faith. It's me depending on Him, looking to Him to accomplish His will through me. So, the third mark of a leader in the body of Christ is brokenness. final mark comes in verses 35 through 38, where Jesus says to them, When I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals... You did not lack anything, did you? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now let him who has a purse take it along. Likewise also a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, that's enough. What's going on here? Jesus wants to teach them another principle about leadership. So he says, remember when I sent you all out to preach and heal, and you didn't have to take anything with you because everybody blessed you, opened their arms and said, come on in, we'll feed you, we'll take care of you. You didn't have to take a thing with you. And they go, yeah, we didn't, we didn't need to take anything. He says, it's not going to be like that from now on. <laughs> from now on, you better be prepared to suffer. You better pre be prepared for rejection. Because you're following me, and he quotes Isaiah 53, and he was numbered with transgressors, for that's about to be fulfilled, he says. And he was that very night, numbered with the transgressors, crucified the next day. And the disciples were rejected. He says, if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, you know what you can expect? The fourth mark? Suffering. Suffering. Last time everybody treated them well, it won't be that way any longer. You can expect to suffer. Jesus says, follow in his steps. When he says that in Peter, do you know what he's saying? Follow me into suffering. First Peter 2. 
Every one of these disciples there, of course Judas ended up betraying him and leaving, every one of these disciples sitting there listening to this was martyred as far as we know, with the exception of John, who was exiled on Patmos. They experienced suffering. I think Jesus is telling all of us we can expect difficulty, suffering, as Satan attacks us, as life is difficult, as God uses the things of life to break us. If you want to follow him and be a leader, this is what life is all about. Leadership in God's kingdom is not privilege, power, honor, authority, It's not what it's about. That's what the world's leadership is about. That's not what the church's body of Christ, Christian's leadership is all about. No. Our job description is humble service, spiritual attack, brokenness, and suffering. Anybody want to sign up? (laughs) It is a tougher way. So why do it? Why not just copy the world and just do it the easier way? It's easier to tell how effective you are. It's easier to just command people than to serve them. Let me give you four reasons why we need to follow God's way rather than the world's way. First, I really believe the church has destroyed her effectiveness in the world by not following servant leadership, broken leadership, but instead just copying the world and setting up hierarchies of authority. We don't stand out as different. We're just like the world. We bought the same structures, and it hasn't freed us as we serve one another to let the Lord be visible in a world that desperately needs to see something different. This church has destroyed her effectiveness, so we're like... A bunch of people walking around with a splint and hobbling around, unable to really love people like he's called us to. Unable to impact the world like we need to. Second reason why we shouldn't copy the world. When we copy the world, we're just not allowing Jesus to be Lord of his church. We've administrated him right out of the picture. So, he's on the outside looking in saying, I'm here, guys. I want to be Lord. I'm head of the church. We've kind of made him unnecessary when we've built our hierarchies and our leadership. And we end up being the blind leading the blind instead of believers being followers of the Lord himself. Thirdly, we're just flatly disobeying the Lord. He says, it shall not be so among you. We've got to be servant leaders. We've got to follow him in that. And then finally, I want to jump back up. I skipped three verses, 28 through 30, where Jesus, I think, gives a marvelous encouragement. He says, And you are those who have stood by me in my trials, speaking to the disciples, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Those who do it God's way 
will experience honor and privilege and impact and influence. Maybe not here, ultimately. But when Jesus comes again, Jesus encourages the disciples, you long for honor, I will grant it to you if you do it my way. But not here. It's when I come again. So he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, in the difficulties. And I think God's word to every one of us this morning is, stand by me. Follow me. As I lived as a servant, as I gave my life for others, don't take authority. Don't be domineering. Rather, become a servant, a suffering servant like I. Become broken that you may truly be the church that I've called you to be. Effective, transforming the world around you. Stay close to Jesus in your suffering and he will give you honor at the proper time. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Lord. We confess that we are so influenced by the world. Lord, we seek for greatness for ourselves when you've called us to seek the lowest position. Help us be people who are leaders wherever we are, in our families, in our jobs, wherever, that are servant leaders, willing to suffer with you as we stay close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.